the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We have got an amazing show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be interviewing author Mike Rothschild, who has written a book called Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Uh, Very much relative to what's going on today out in the world. The second half of the hour, we're going to talk about the portion of Lech Lecha, which will be read in the synagogue. Some insights there. We're playing wonderful Jewish music throughout the show. A really amazing Hasidic story all the way at the end. And let's go right to our interview. We have Mr. Rothschild on the line. How are you today, Mike? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Of course. Uh, Rothschilds. Okay, <laughs> so this is this is it's like um, not a whole people people know about Fiddler on the Roof, and people know the song. If I was a rich man, da 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 da. da. But in <laughs> the, the original Yiddish version of that song is Eibergewalter Rothschild. If I was a Rothschild, so it seems like the word the name Rothschild has become it's like it's like Xerox or Kleenex or you know whatever. It just became like. A genericized, like, well, that means, of course, a, a rich Jewish person is a Rothschild. So uh, the the idea of, of tropes and conspiracies and uh, and all that type of stuff. So the first, I want to I want to tell a joke before we get into this. And you probably heard Always. this joke. You've heard, you, you, how many conspiracy Jewish conspiracy jokes do you know? I don't know a whole lot of Jewish conspiracy. I, jokes. I don't know a lot of Jewish conspiracy jokes. I don't know a lot of Jewish jokes, but okay. not not so much conspiracy jokes. Okay, so Hans and Wilhelm, otherwise known as Chaim and and Zev, are sitting on a park bench in downtown Berlin. They're two brothers, and Hans is. Re- it's 1936, and Hans is reading Der Stormer, which is the Nazi propaganda paper. And uh, and Wilhelm says to Hans, Hans, what are you doing reading this? And he says to him, my dear brother, when I read the Spiegel, what do I see over there? This professor got fired. This Jew got beat up. This person's store got burnt down. I read the Sturmer. What do I see? The Jews control the banks. The Jews control the media. <laughs> it makes me feel good. <laughs> You never heard this joke? Yeah, that's, yes, that's is, about right. Yeah, so <laughs> just let's let's go back then. Uh, Jews and money has it's it's a lot older than the Rothschilds. Rothschilds family goes back I don't know two hundred and something years back to Frankfurt, Germany, but Shakespeare was writing about Skylark and and money loan loanings and things like that. That was in the fifteen hundreds, and and he never even met a Jew. 
So right. this idea of Jews and money, how, how did that come about? So the, the idea that Jews are sort of better with money or, or have, you know, natural wisdom or just have more of it, that really goes back to the Middle Ages when uh, in, in these communities, Christians were not allowed to lend money at interest. It was considered usury, and it was a uh, can, canon, canon law sin uh, basically on par with murder. But, of course, a lot of these nobility and a lot of these churches, they needed money. They needed money to build their palaces and their giant edifices and, of course, raise their armies. So they would go to the Jewish community, and they knew that the Jewish community was allowed to lend money at interest. And this had been going on for hundreds of years before that. There were uh, court bankers in you know, 12 and 1300s England who were some of the richest people in, on the island. So you had this, uh, this community of people who had access to money and were allowed to lend it at interest to people who needed it. But at the same time, the idea of lending money at interest was also considered sinful. So these Jewish communities walked this line of providing something that was needed but also made them hated. And it, I feel like Jews are in many ways still living in even to this day. Indeed they are. So – were there, and I don't know if, how, how far you back you researched before this, but weren't weren't there all kinds of tropes and I suppose the equivalent of memes for back then about Jews and and money and controlling banks and controlling even before the Rothschilds then? There were definitely ideas that Jews couldn't be trusted, that that Jewish communities had too much money, that they kept it among themselves. You didn't start to have the idea of a small cabal of Jews running the world. Really, you know, that really became popular with the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, starting in the 1920s. But even that's over a hundred years now. So we've been dealing with this idea, certainly that Jews are just richer, have have uh, innate business wisdom. That's been around for a long time. The idea that they're using that money as a mechanism of control over the Gentiles—that's a little more recent, but still not that recent. Okay, why why Rothschild? There are other wealthy families of the Montefiori's, the Sassoon's, the Kadaris. I mean, there's a whole list of of wealthy Jewish families that were involved, indeed, with banking, but also with other things. The sugar merchants were were the spice merchants, the carpet merchants, the art dealers. These people were all making zillions of dollars. Why why did they? How did the Rothschilds get picked? It, I think it, it's a couple of things. I think the first is visibility. The Rothschilds had these massive palaces all over Europe. They, they were in Vienna. They're in London. They're in Paris. They've got the artworks. They've got the horses. They've got the wine. That name is everywhere, and it, it gains the kind of mystique that builds on itself. People know the name Rothschild because so many people know the name Rothschild. Now, the other factor here is that the Rothschilds really were involved in world events. They really were the Jewish family that a lot of leaders went to when they needed a lot of money. I write about in the book how Benjamin Disraeli had the opportunity to buy Egypt's share of the Suez Canal. He went to Rothschild. He knew that Rothschild had the money on hand to, to loan him, and he was, they were able to pay it back. But it was that involvement in world affairs that then created this mythos that, of course, almost immediately leads to conspiracy theories. And the Rothschilds have been a very powerful family for the first half of the 1800s, and really they've been sort of mocked a little bit in the literature and the cartoons of the time, but it's really in the late 1840s with the rise of socialism that the focus turns to the Rothschilds and their wealth concentration as something sinister and something that has a, a darker purpose to it, which is sort of kicks off these pamphlet wars in revolutionary Paris in 1848 that really starts a lot of the tropes and myths that we're still dealing with today. Okay, our guest today is Mike Rothschild, by the way, who is not related. And I can, <laughs> I can, I can, but it probably opened many doors for you when you, you know, hand your card and see or somebody calls and says, "Hi, it's Michael Rothschild on the phone." It's just like, "Ta-da, my!" And I know this firsthand because my my uh, wife's maiden name is Rothschild, and okay. her brothers Michael, David, and Nathan. These are all Rothschild names. So, sure. so my brother, who is my brother David, brother-in-law David, who is a uh, fundraiser for Jewish organizations, so he tells the stories of going into Antwerp, into into these big, huge businesses, and and uh, 
presenting himself at the door and sending saying that you know the secretary saying who are you and he's saying I'm I'm David Rothschild and the secretary <laughs> saying to the CEO David Rothschild is here to see you and David the CEO comes running and says what <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming you've well, had similar always... experiences oh I definitely have when. Uh... When I started writing about conspiracy theories, I would start to get comments of, oh, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. You know, how stupid do they think we are? You know, somebody reset the, the simulation, like everything's gone crazy. Um, but it, it's also, it, it's definitely a, uh, an icebreaker. You know, I, it, I, it helps me when I'm giving speeches or on panels or things like that. It's a way to sort of talk about some of this really dark subject matter, but starting it off with a laugh where I talk about being mistaken for a Rothschild and, you know, doing this work, you know, having this last name, which is, of course, the subject of so many conspiracy theories. But it definitely – that the name has an aura to it. It has a mystique to it. And, of course, we've seen this in some of these fake Rothschilds that have shown up. You know, this fake Rothschild, Anna de Rothschild, who got into Mar-a-Lago. More recently, there was a story in Vanity Fair about a, a guy named Kyle who – I mean, he, I think his mom's last name or something was Rothschild, but he's not related. And he was using the name Kyle de Rothschild to do, you know, art deals in Manhattan. And people just assumed he was part of the family. So there is a, there is a, a glow about this name that is, is in a lot of the writing about the family, that this name ha has this, is this mystique attached to it. And I wanted to sort of get into why that is and what about it is real and what isn't. Okay. So now. So, so it's really it gets real, really piled on. What when I'm reading your book, what really amazed me is some of the things how absolutely ridiculous some of the claims could possibly be. And do we do people who originate these things expect people to believe them? Let's go like back to like the Battle of Waterloo. The the Rothschilds hmm. made out millions of francs from Napoleon's defeat. I mean, it's like, how is it, how, what were people thinking? I mean, who, who, how did that even come about? Well, it's interesting because the Waterloo myth really emerged 30 years after the battle uh, and 10 years after Nathan Rothschild had died. So, you know, nobody who was around could, could refute it because it had been so long. But it caught on because of this pamphlet that was released uh, right in sort of the, the, the height of the, the rise of the socialist movements where there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of ill feelings over wealth concentration and in particular Jewish wealth concentration. And much of this was directed at the Rothschilds. And this pamphlet, which was written under the pen name Satan by this French kind of rabble rouser, I mean, you maybe call him a troll today makes these two accusations. And the one is that Nathan Rothschild was at the Battle of Waterloo. He watched the whole thing go down, and he you know, fled across the English Channel in a, in a storm, and he got to the London Stock Exchange, and all of the bankers saw him, and he looked exhausted and defeated, and they started selling their stocks, and Nathan starts buying them. And when the news of Napoleon's defeat comes in, he becomes a billionaire and takes control of the British money supply. The other is that James de Rothschild, who's Nathan's brother, who was a very major big wheel in Paris and was basically building out the European railroad system, had built a railroad that was so cheap and shoddy that it contributed to an accident that killed a bunch of people. So you have these twin myths of the Rothschilds manipulating the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo and using that money to essentially hurt the people of France. And because of this socialist fervor that was going on, it, it felt believable. There was, no, there was never any evidence then or now that Nathan was at the battle. In fact, we know he wasn't, and we know sort of the trajectory of how the news of the battle reached England. But at that point, you know, people don't really know any better, and, and, and you know, we deal with this now. It's a story that sounds true. It, it, it's, it sounds true enough, and people just go with it because it dovetails with things they already believed. So the speed at, at which these myths are transmitted is certainly much faster now. But the reason why the myths take hold is exactly the same now as it was in the 1840s. Very interesting here. We got something just amazing. Again, our guest today is Michael Rothschild, written a book called Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theory. This one's like reads like a, a mystery novel. You just don't want to put it hmm. down. I just read it like from cover to cover. It's just like... 
straight through. And of course, <laughs> when we saw the uh, the PR for it, my wife said, "Oh, we have to get that because her <laughs> her name being her maiden name being Rothschild sure. and her brother being named Mike Rothschild, and then you know wanting to know are we are we are we related? You know, so we're both not related <laughs> to the Rothschild. So it's like the friend of my the friend of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of my sure, enemy is exactly. my friend. So the not related person to Rothschild and the not related to Rothschild, we must be related somehow, but. So we just you're you're related to an, a now another branch of you're not related to another branch of Rothschilds. <laughs> so you can you can put that down here. Not related to the the Rothschilds of, of uh, Philadelphia. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. And there's other Rothschilds. You know, there, it's a it's a fairly common German name. You know, there's uh, of course Dorothy Rothschild became Dorothy Parker. Um, and when one of the historical ironies, her uncle, Martin Rothschild, was on the Titanic when it sank. He went down with the ship. And, of course, there's all these conspiracy theories that the Rothschilds, the banking Rothschilds, sank the Titanic in order to uh, make sure that the Federal Reserve was created. So, you know, there's, there's any number of ways that this family connects to things, even the things that they had nothing to do with. That's interesting. Also, just as an aside, just between you and me and all the – hundreds of thousands of people that are listening. My brother-in-law, Michael, is a student of, I believe it's Mandarin Chinese, and he went off to uh, to China after he finished his degree to go uh, to study it up and do work over there. And Rothschild, in, translated into English, means red shield. Right. So the way that you say red shield in Mandarin is Jew, which I thought, <laughs> are you kidding me? No. Uh, that, wow, I didn't know that. Yes, that's like, that's, like um, what? Okay, so <laughs> so do they have tropes in in Chinese also? Yeah, maybe, but so they do. And then you know, I, I in the book I talk about how uh, anti-Semitic myths have taken hold in both China and Japan, and a lot of it is based around the Rothschilds. Uh, you know, again, because that's the name that they've heard. They they just know that name. Which is very interesting because in China you're talking the Sassoon and the Kidari families. Those are the ones who are right. like involved with the spices and the tea and the opium and et cetera, the silk, the silk trade, et cetera. They really were controlling a lot. And Rothschild just got that was that's their their uh, their thing. That, you know, God decided they're going to be the uh, the generic on it. Okay, so mm-hmm. we get into like modern times now and. Things travel at the speed of light. We get things, we're, we're being bombarded. I mean, it's just just this week, there was a German parliamentarian, I think he was, who stood up and said that Jews are really only good at international money 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 lending. I don't know if you saw that, but that was that was I did not, but I'm not surprised. That was that was just <laughs> this week and you know, this is after yeah. they passed a law in Germany about being, you know, anti-Semitism and talking with the PL, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's I what I would like to hear is like how do we what do we do about this? We're uh, you know, I see these things when I Marjorie Taylor Greene to me is like i don't know her iq is like somewhat similar to an eggplant and mm-hmm. and the thing that that she said that the fires in in western united states were caused by lasers that the rothschilds built it's just like are what it's just like what 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 are we supposed to do with this mike rothschild well it's it, you know, it is sort of the never-ending problem. Um, you know, one of the things I've heard about the book is like, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not a real happy ending at the end. And I'm like, well, we're do, we're going on two thousand plus years of more than two thousand years of this, and if you've got a happy ending in mind, I'd love to hear it. But you know, I, I do think that there are things that we can do, and I I think that one of the things I wanted to do with the book is expose what a lot of anti-Semites mean when they talk about the Rothschilds, when they talk about George Soros, when they use terms like globalist and international finance and, you know, London bankers, they're, they're talking about Jewish money. And I think that if we even know what those terms really mean, and, and we know that if we really internalize that anti-Semitism is not just, I hate Jews, it's not just marching Nazis. It is minimizing Jewish experiences. It is, it is the assumption that Jews are just doing better than everybody else, and therefore, 
racism and anti-Semitism don't affect them. Um, it's, it's understanding that these terms are very coded. Uh, they're very they're very couched in you know in hidden meanings. You know, I, I ran into this with Elon Musk when Musk was talking about that it was the ADL's fault that Twitter had lost half of its value from when he bought it. He's using a very old Jewish stereotype that Jews control money and that Jews are responsible for the business failings of non-Jews. He's not coming out and saying, I blame the Jews for this or I hate the Jews. It's, it's much more sinister, much more subtle, but his, his fans understand it, and the people who he's talking to know what it means. And so I, my hope is that the rest of us can know what it means and, and catch it in our own discourse, in our own um, you know, travels online, in, in the discourse of our friends and the people we know. So that when people we know use these terms, when they fall back on these stereotypes, we can call it out. It doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be a public shaming. It just can be, hey, you used this, this term and that's anti-Semitic, and maybe let's not do that next time. You know, fighting these very small-scale battles because we know that, you know, getting rid of anti-Semitism at large is, you know, almost impossible. But on a very small scale, I think it's doable. Okay, so you bring up Elon Musk, and my wife asked me to actually to to bring this up also. So when it was Twitter, there were there were safeguards in place on Twitter that they they uh, monitored and counteracted and took care of making sure that it was not a platform for hate speech. But now that it's called X, and you have other platforms like Telegraph, for example, where there is no monitoring, so. Can the the conspiracies and the tropes and the memes can they can they really be controlled? I mean, you're, like you say, we're talking about they're coming at us at the speed of light, Michael Rothschild. I think that they they can be contr- more controlled. There can be guardrails. You know, Twitter was certainly far from from perfect. I, I've struggled with conspiracy theories on Twitter for a long time, but there was an effort made to remove. The worst offenders. There was an effort made to police the content, at least somewhat. And you know, one of the questions I get from people who are sort of, you know, people who want unmitigated free speech is, oh, you know, you're saying that, you know, you're not allowed to say certain things. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like YouTube, they have a right to have rules. And the rules can be. You can say that, you just can't say it here. And if you say it here too many times, we're going to kick you off. And a lot of the platforms, particularly what is now X, are not doing that. It is, it is this sort of unmitigated free speech. Everybody says everything they want, and you, know, you just have to live with it. Well, when you have a platform where everybody says everything they want, it almost immediately always devolves into racism, misogyny, and anti-Semitism. That's just the way these things work. And there is nobody minding the store now. And, of course, you now have as well the incentivizing. You have this ad revenue program, which is allowing people who buy verification to then spread the worst rumors and the worst conspiracy theories, and they get paid for it. So now you have a a business model that is monetizing outrage and shock and conspiracism. And that is – that is not good for political discourse. I mean, we've seen Twitter become, you know, go from the sort of the gold standard for breaking news. Again, it wasn't always right, but it was right a lot more than it was wrong. And it's now just a cesspool where you can't trust anything. Indeed. Maybe we should start a campaign like in reverse. We should maybe all get together and post to things like to X, like things that say like, white European men are controlling the world and there's this white, <laughs> white privilege and we're all the res- yes. this is all the result of white men and just like you know turn it turn it around would, would it have that an effect I mean considering that uh, two-thirds of the population of the United States is white men or half at least or something like that I don't think so anyway so but okay so let I don't it's, it was a joke so anyway, but <laughs> thank you. Um, so the reason there's been a tremendous rise in this uh, anti-Semitism, which has seemed to have like crawled out from under the rocks where it had been lying dormant for quite a long time. And the reason being, you could you could give reasons. You could say, well, it was the Trump administration, but 
that doesn't explain why there's a rise in anti-Semitism in, say, Western Europe or in South America or in Australia, per se. So why suddenly is there this such like a mushrooming of anti-Semitism? I just saw a report yesterday that in England there was a uh, 581% uptick in anti-Semitic incidents since October 7th. That's only that's, that's two weeks. Yeah. Well, I think it's a lot of factors. I think a lot of it is that the far right in general has been on the rise in the Western world over the last eight to 10 years. You know, we've seen these, these movements like the Trump movement, like Brexit, like some of what's going on in um, Brazil, places, places like that. And when you have a more conservative, more sort of traditionalist political bent that's on the rise, you get a lot of scapegoating, and you get a lot of scapegoating at Jews because that's kind of who is always scapegoated. And Jewish power is blamed for the, uh, you know, the decline in traditionalism, you know, the traditional Western family, traditional Western morals. Uh, you know, there's now there's gender identity issues with all of this. You know, the sort of American culture wars are kind of spilling out all across the world. And when that happens, Jews fall under a microscope because Jews are seen as manipulating all of it or profiting off of all of it. Of course, Trump was a big part of that, but it, it certainly wasn't just Trump. It's Le Pen in France. It's, you know, it's the UKIP political party in the UK. It's, it's a lot of people, and, it, and it's a global ascendancy of the far right. And this just happens every, every generation or so. The other thing, of course, is in the micro level, we've got what's going on in Israel right now. And the anti-Semitism, particularly on the left, has really exploded over the last few weeks. I think there is a lot of conflating of American Jews with Israel, a lot of assumptions that all American Jews support every single thing that the Netanyahu government does, uh, that American Jews are not loyal to America or that they, are, they have dual loyalty to America and Israel. These are sort of cl classic anti-Semitic tropes. The, none of this started two weeks ago. It's just manifesting because of what is going on and because information is traveling so fast and because disinformation is traveling so fast. So it's a lot of different factors that are all hitting at the same time. Got it. Do we, do we need to be paranoid? Do we have to be looking over our um, shoulder or is it just rhetoric? I think we need to be cautious. I, I would never, ever encourage anybody to be paranoid. Uh, I try not to be paranoid in my own life uh, because paranoia is one of the things that the anti-Semites and the trolls want. They, want. they want us to be scared. They want us to doubt our choices and alter our lives. But we do need to be more cautious. We do need to um, you know, have a little more awareness of our surroundings and of what's going on. I've had a couple of people say to me, I bought the e-book, you know, the, the Kindle version of your book, because I didn't want to be seen in public reading a book called Jewish Space Laser. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, at least you bought it. Uh, <laughs> it works. But, um, it, it, yeah, okay, it's the same, same royalty. But um, I, I do feel like there, there is a need for a little bit of caution right now. But, but I do think that there are more people who are appalled by anti-Semitism than there are who are suddenly embracing it. I think just the people who are embracing it are much louder right now because of this political situation and because of this situation in Israel. That will pass because I think it really always does pass. And there, and anti-Semitism, the acceptability of anti-Semitism is very cyclical. And I think right now we're just at a point where it is much more acceptable and it will fade, hopefully, as we get further and further you know, through this situation with Hamas right now and on to whatever the next thing is. Uh, so we're hoping that it will crawl back under the rock from whence it came. I, I hope so. I, you know, I, I try to have hope. Okay, indeed. Okay, that's going to wrap it up again. Our guest today was Mike Rothschild, written a book called S Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschild of 200 Years of Conspiracy Theory. And by the way, just another point of, like, why we think that you might be related is – my brothers-in-law are into conspiracy theories. They have been okay. just like 
going back to who killed Jack Kennedy to the Masons, sure. you know, 200 years ago, setting up the founding fathers. And just if there's a conspiracy theory out there, they're they're on, like right on top of it. So, you know, you've you've pursued this is there's this book and then you have the other book that you've written about QAnon is your next sure. book about some other uh, conspiracy. Uh, Michael, I'm working. I'm working on it. Not not ready to announce it yet, but I'm uh... I am going to stay in that world, I think, because uh-huh. um, there's, you know, there's a lot, and it really does feel like everybody knows somebody who is into one of these things, and, um, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's, I think it's just going to become more and more pervasive, unfortunately. Uh-huh. So I see you're going to be like the person that CNN calls upon to talk about conspiracy theory. Now we're having world-renowned conspiracy theorists. <laughs> yes, Michael Rothschild. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, anyway, we do want to thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Wish you all the best. Keep us apprised of your future endeavors. And uh, take care. Thank you. You too. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finnan here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Let's just totally get out of that mood and get into something else. You know, it's just like <laughs> the last two weeks our interviews have been really heavy, understood, and I hope next week we can do something light. Maybe we can find somebody who wrote a cookbook or something. Those are those always really good just to change the, the tone. But to t- change the tone right now, so this is Uri Davidi. He's doing a cover from a Yishai Reboy piece, which uh, for those people that like Yishai Reboy, so it's not Yishai Reboy singing it. It's Uri Davidi who just started. He just came out with this. It's called Lev Shali, My Heart.
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulfiman, here you're listening to The Jewish Hour. This one, up next, this is a very famous song. It's uh, it's not exactly Klezner, but it is in Yiddish. It's about the famous Revy Kalanimus Kaladin. That's it. That's the, the that was this person's name. Those are his first name and his middle name. He was known as the Holy Hunchback. Evidently, he has uh, had scoliosis and was truly a uh, a miracle worker. He lived, uh, I think, to the beginning of the 1900s. Moved. From from central Hungary to Israel, I think to Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, I think that's where he was buried. And this singer is Yudi Bialystoki, and he's singing it in Yiddish. <laughs> Der Schiene hat sich erkennt auf seinem Gesicht. Ich bin sie gegangen und gesucht, Schule am Leichen mit dem Biet. Er entfällt pink wie ein Städtel, allein im Schulum. Ich frage ihn mit Mama Luschen, man teure Brüder, sie sie geht. Der zählt mir, für welche Städtel die kämpft. Ich kämpfe für Piasetschnaf. Es gibt ihm wie eine Bombe in mein Herz. Ich habe kein Mulch gesehen, ein Jid, was kommt von dort. Was die Amul getroffen hat, klingt mir Skalmen. Dem Reben frage ich ihn, aber was er sagt mir, ich habe gelebt, wie mal ein Jungen als Kind. Bei der Elf bin ich gekommen, kein Auschwitz. Mal gemeint, ich will sie wissen. Mal geschickt arbeiten, bitte in Schweden. Jetzt bin ich elend, gut allein auf der Welt. Der Alte dreht sich aus, in geht Wasser die Gassen. In Manoiren klingt mich noch dem Lied. Die gerechte Sache in der ganzen Welt ist ein Tina Teure, Fahrrad zweit Kinderlich Gedenke, die in der Tode verheimelt sind. 
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman Hergey. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have time for one more. This is actually a very cool song. It is sung by Chaim Guri, which I've never heard of Chaim Guri. And it's a uh, maybe it's his first endeavor into Jewish music. The song is called Sheep, and it is a, his rendition of the 23rd Psalms which says, you know, it makes me lie down in green pastures. So he talks about the, with the sheep. So he intersperses in Hebrew and English into it, and it's done in a very nice way. I, I like the arrangement a lot. I'm sure you will, too. So let's listen to Chaim Guri.
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Fleming here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week we'll be reading the portion of Lech Lecha in the book of Genesis chapter 10 and following. So there was a a story, this is not the Hasidic story. At one time, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe came out of his room, and there were a group of Hasidim sitting around. And he said, you know what your problem is with you guys? The translation is my own. You guys are just not keeping up with the times. And he went back inside. Now, this was very perplexing, because this is, you're talking... You're talking 1790s Liadi, which Liadi is located many miles east of Gross Point Farms. This is a shtetl of shtetls. If somebody walked into town wearing a short jacket, he was already suspect of being like, you know, a modernist. They just didn't, they didn't do that. So the Rebbe's brother explained what the Rebbe meant was that you have to read the portion of the week, which is a very interesting thing. I mean, this is a, uh, oh, goes back, I don't know how many thousands of years that Jews have been charged with reviewing the portion of the week every single week. And there are different ways that it was done. 2,000 years ago, they said that you should read it with the Aramaic translation so that you can understand what was going on, which was very good when people understood Aramaic. And there are still people who do that. I actually do review it with the Aramaic, and there are insights to it, but I had to learn Aramaic. I had to learn Hebrew, and just to, you know, sometimes I have to learn, look at the Hebrew to see what the Aramaic means, and sometimes I look at the Aramaic to see what the Hebrew means. But then came along in the, uh, the early thousands, you had Rashi. Rashi wrote his commentary, and his commentary simply explained every word in the Chumash. And so... Every day, a person should learn. It's going back uh, four, five hundred, six hundred years, maybe that it was adopted that on Sunday to review the first port part of the of the portion. The portion is divided into seven parts, which happens to correspond like with the days of the week. They read the whole thing on Saturday, but. On Sunday to review the first part, on Monday the second part, so that by Saturday you've reviewed the whole entire portion. So the, the what the Alter Rebbe was saying is, is it's not enough to just review the portion because then it just becomes like, oh, I did this last year already. Like, what's it? No, no. he said, you have to live with the portion. And this week's portion, what do we have? We have the travels and the travails of the patriarch Abraham first up on the scene. He's, he's born in the uh, end of the last week's portion, and there is an allusion to his first of ten tests, which is one test in the last week's portion. There are six in this week's portion, and then there's three in the next portion. So he didn't have a great life when it came to like living in uh, peace and harmony and just chilling and take, kicking it back. No. He had a tough life, but what was he able to accomplish? So the Rebbe writes that with Abraham began what's referred to in Hebrew as avodas habirurim. The world was made in order to perfect it. And Abraham and his thereafter progeny were given the main task, not the exclusive task, the main task 
of providing the purification of the mundane world to make it as best as it possibly could be. And that includes also encouraging, because how many Jews are there in the world? 16 million? Encouraging 7.5 billion non-Jews to also participate in making the world a better place. The word beerer means purify. Get rid of the schmutz. It's kind of like, you know, uh, we, we could use examples of wheat and chaff, but I've never actually winnowed wheat that I know what it means to take the chaff out of the wheat. And I know that there are those people who uh, sifted through beans many, I don't know, 100 years ago to make sure that the rocks and the dirt were out of them. But we do things like that. We kind of like sift through and pick out the things that are not good. You know, when you when you buy a box of blueberries, for example, you kind of like look through them and any ones that look meh, they go in the trash or in the compost, as the case may be. Because you want only the good ones. So that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be just elevating, bringing up the good stuff and putting the other stuff into the compost heap. It'll get, it'll decompose, it'll turn to fertilizer, and it'll just be the way that it's supposed to be. And so what what, what do we have to do as, as people is focus on what can I do to make this situation the best that it could possibly be? And how is it going to be that at the end of the day, the world is a better place? And this is what it means to live with this portion, to live with the patriarch, Abraham. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we will be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Some things are better the way they used to be, like the crisp feel of a cool autumn day, the serenity of a baby sleeping, or the feeling of coming home after a long trip. Franklin Cider Mills makes cider the way cider is supposed to be. Its old-fashioned clear, crisp taste reminds you of a cool autumn day. Located in the heart of historic Franklin Village at 14 Mile and Franklin Road, Franklin Cider Mill has been making cider the same way for over a century. Always fresh, with no additives or preservatives. You just can't buy Franklin Cider in any supermarket. Franklin Cider Mill is open from Labor Day weekend to after Thanksgiving from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Come visit Franklin Cider Mill. It's kind of like coming home. Schulfeman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Would you like to get in touch with me? The easiest way, if you have any comment, question, query, criticism, you name it, go to my my website, rabbifinman.com, and right there on the homepage, you can click on the contact link, and it's easy, no fuss, no muss, no bother. You don't have to go looking. Some of these websites, I keep on complaining about them. There was one website from a publisher that I went through this week because I wanted to get a book from them. And uh, I had to click on four different links before I got to where it said, okay, this is how you contact us if you want to get a book. So it's just like, I guess they're trying to discourage people. I'm encouraging you to, uh, to contact me with anything that's on your head. Even if you just want to dump, I'm really good at dumping. I've got big shoulders. Um, for most people, you'd have to stand on a box to, to, like, you know, cry on my shoulder because I'm so tall. But I've I've heard it before, and uh, please, you know, contact me. What else is on RabbiFinman.com? Well, there's archived editions of the radio show. Last bunches of weeks have been really good. If you missed any, you want to go click back and, and listen to those. There's the media in which I uh, explain and uh, present Judaism in an entertaining and educational way. There's a donation page, which I'm not talking about this week because uh, September and October were paid for by a very generous donor. And I made a rule that if the month has been paid off, I don't talk about making donations. But you can go look at the donation page, too, just to see how it works. And uh, at your convenience, you can also check out Jewish Ferndale, which is our other, the sister uh, website. Find out what's happening in Ferndale with the community garden, with the public library, lending library, with events that we're having over there. Check out our Facebook page, Rabbi Finman, Facebook Rabbi Finman. We had an amazing lecture this last week, David Morrison presenting the art of Jewish weaving. It was fascinating i couldn't believe you know it's just like it sounds like a you know this is, this is a topic but 
amazing topic. Go go check that out on my Facebook page. So it's all there. And if you want to contact me, uh, if you're an, a, uh, an Instagram person, that's fine. I don't do Twitter. Nope. As long as it's the platform that it is, I'm not being involved with Twitter. I am involved with LinkedIn, but I never answered. I just post my ePartia there. So those are the ways to contact me. So now it says in the beginning of the Bible that God hid the light of the first day for the righteous. He was afraid that the wicked people were going to use this, this great energy for wrong, and therefore he hid it for the righteous to use. And there are many stories, like, for example, this one. In Mexico, in the late 70s, Mexico, in these stories, usually actually means when you say, when a Mexican says Mexico, he means Mexico City. There's a lot of Jews in Mexico City. There's a lot of people in Mexico City. There's 24 million. It's one of the most populated cities in the world. 24 million people live in Mexico City. And there's a Jewish community there. It's like several tens of thousands of people. And they happened since World War II. They're, they're in plants there from, mostly from after World War II. And uh, with other things over there, there's a nice Sephardic community, people that came over from Syria after 1948. A teenage girl was kidnapped. And the kidnappers were demanding $60 million from the family or the girl would be executed and we're not negotiating. And don't try and find us because any attempt... And that's it for the girl. So the family is frantic. So they had a connection with the, I think they were, they were, must have been a Sephardic family, and they had something to do with the Bubba Sali, who was the leader of the Moroccan Jewry from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And his, uh, from the 1960s, he had moved to Netivot in Israel. And so an uncle of the teenager went off to Netivot. And he explained to the Bubba Sali what it was that had occurred. And the Bubba Sali wore a hood. He wore a white robe with a hood. And depending on what his mood was, there was the hood was over his face, whatever. The hood was basically covering most of his eyes. And he just sat there. And after a while, he, he asked for a pencil and pa a pen and paper. And so his uh, Mashoris, his valet, brought him a pen and paper. And he drew a picture of a building on a street. And he said, standing outside this building are two men. One of them is short and stocky like a potato. The other one is tall and lanky like a tree. These are two of the kidnappers. They are very dangerous. These are the guards. Go to this building, which is on this and this street, with 20 policemen and capture them. Then make them go into the building. First, have them open the door. When the door is open and they are in, the 20 policemen should go in and arrest the other six and each one, this one looks like this, and this one looks like that. And he described in detail what each one of these looked like. So the, this uncle took the piece of paper. He ran back to Mexico, flew back to Mexico, and presented it to the family. The family went to the police. It was exactly, every detail was exactly as the Bubby Pasali had described and written and drawn on the piece of paper. How did he see it? With a light from the six days of creation. That's going to do it. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope you have a great week. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. Shake it,
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.